His very familiar portion of the scripture, it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to read the whole prayer. You know it as the Lord's Prayer. And this is what Jesus said there in teaching his disciples and us how to pray. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So all men are like grass and all their glory like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Once again, before the ministry of the word, would you pray with me? Father, I know for myself how much I treasure the time we have in your word and how important it is to me to pray before the ministry of the word. I know, Father, that no matter how much or little I think I have when I come here, I know that uh, unless you take it into your own hands and Multiply it. It's not enough. If you, if you don't do as Jesus did with the loaves and fishes, then it's like a little boy's lunch among 5,000 people. Lord, we need what you do for us here on Sunday. We need you to feed our hearts and our souls on your word. Because there's life in your word. Sustenance. Strengthens us. It helps us to become more of what you want us to be. And Father, I acknowledge, along with my predecessors, that I really am nothing at all. It's you who are everything, it's you who gives the increase. And all the pastors and preachers before me and who will follow after me, merely plant and water. It's you who does the work. And thank you that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there is uh, this passage in the Old Testament which... uh, Most unbelievers, that is those people who are outside of the faith, would find startling uh, were they ever to read it. Uh, Even believers, I think, sometimes pause as they come to grips with it. Psalm 33, 5 uh, says this, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. And and that part is pretty much what uh, we expect. But what uh, the psalmist writes next can take us by surprise when he says the earth is full of his unfailing love. You know, it seems that it is part of our nature as fallen human beings to take note of the bad things in our world while taking the good things for granted. So when we read a statement like that, it fairly staggers us. We see our world torn by strife and poverty and conflict, all of which is a result of sin. 
And that captures our attention. While all of the good things that go on day by day and week by week, year in and year out, are so easily overlooked. Mothers love their children. Fathers work hard to provide for their families. Brothers and sisters help one another. Strangers show kindness to other strangers. The church of the living God takes the gospel to the four corners of our world and God himself loves every man and woman and child and seeks them through their through his holy spirit drawing them to that fountain of life which is his son and our savior it really is not an exaggeration to say that the earth is full of God's unfailing love but you and I know, don't we, how easy it is to forget that truth. Some hardship enters our life and we can almost forget God's blessing. And, and the reality is, is if we ever stop and think about it, more good, and we really ought to say, vastly more good has marked our lives and the bad things in them have been relatively few in number. Now, we might think that uh, about those people. We might expect that about those people who are living here in the United States. But, but I think maybe we're not always so sure about it when we think about people living in other parts of the world. And yet, I believe that if we were able to see those things from the perspective of eternity, even there, we know that God's love abounds. And with it, good. And yet, it exists in the midst of a more open kind of evil. There are more bad things there, and, and those bad things are reported more, and we hear more about it and the suffering that accompanies it. And through the ages, the church has always responded in love towards those who were less fortunate, taking the gospel to them and doing anything they can to help them. You know, that's what the shoebox ministry is all about. It's about the church looking out in the world and seeing thousands of children that have nothing. And that box goes into a town. And some child gets that and opens it up. And it speaks to them about the love of Jesus Christ. And what's so amazing is, is those kids who have nothing at all take that out and they share it with other people. It's a phenomenal ministry and it's just a, a small glimpse of what God does in our world and what the church has done down through the ages. The earth really is full of God's unfailing love even though some places and dormer suffering, good abounds to us everywhere, to all people everywhere. And that is God's will for us. That's why it abounds to us. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that there's never, it's never God's will for us to go through difficult times. So we, all of us, know that those times can come our way. And for many weeks now, we, we've been... We've been talking about discovering God's will for our lives of, and, and also for the smaller twists and turns of our existence. And for the most part, whenever believers talk about seeking God's will, they, they do so from a very positive 
outlook. They, they think about it in a positive way. And, and they understand, though, that it may involve difficult things along the way. And we also believe, and I really think we believe it, I, I know we believe it, that often um, we might have that belief tested to its limit. We really do believe that God brings good out of even the bad things that come our way. So as believers, we trust that God's will would be done, and that will, whatever it is, is what's best for our lives. And today, what we want to do is we want to examine that part of God's will when it means hardship for us. You see, none of us want to go through those things, and if we could, we would avoid all of them, but sometimes... The truth is, it just is God's will for us. And none of us here know when we might have to go through those things, nor do we know what those trials might entail. And yet, it really is a help for us when such times come, if we've thought about it beforehand. And if you're here today and you're in the midst of such a trial, the the example we're going to look at, I think, can help you even now, even if you're in the very middle of a darkest time in your life. So we're going to look this morning at uh, Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he faced his hour of trial and temptation. And we're going to see how he faced it. And from that, I hope we can learn how we can go through such trials ourselves. So I want to invite you to join me in the Gospel of Matthew, the text we're going to look at today, chapter 26, and uh, verses 39 through 46. Hopefully we'll get those up there. Join me in your Bible, or it's up on the screen on either side. Now what I want to do here now is simply bring you up kind of to speed and where we are. Jesus has spent the evening with his disciples, and he has revealed to him, to them, the, the real meaning behind the Passover, though they likely still didn't fully understand it. And he's warned them about the betrayal that's coming. He's instructed them and comforted them, and he's prayed for them. And now he's led them to a place where they have often gone before, a garden on the side of Mount Olives. And we pick up our story there in verse 38. And then he, that is Jesus, said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then uh, in a physical demonstration of what he, what he was feeling, we're told that he went a little further and he fell with his face to the ground. Now, I have to tell you, if we were living in Old Testament times, I would instruct you right now to take the shoes off of your feet. For if Moses was standing on holy ground when he heard the voice of God speaking to him from a bush that was burning and yet wasn't consumed. How much more are we as we stand with Jesus in the garden and see the very heart of God? And yet what Moses did is a symbolic act by taking his shoes off. We do in our heart as we expose our hearts before the living God. I have to tell you something, my brothers and sisters, that it is really all but presumption for any mere man to talk about what we see here. It's with a kind of holy fear that 
I do so. And I would not do it knowing what I do, as little as I know, if I didn't have some assurance that God had called us to speak about these things. There is more going on in this passage than any man can tell. But he has recorded it for it. He has put it in the scriptures for us to teach us and to guide us and to encourage us. And Jesus is in this garden, and he knew what he was waiting for. And though the scriptures tells us that he set his face like flint as he made his way to Jerusalem for that last time, the sorrow and sadness had welled up in his heart. He knew that in a very little time, people who should have welcomed him would begin mistreating him and, uh, and venting their hatred on him. And those closest to him would desert him, and that one of them had already betrayed him, and another one would deny him, and worst of all, he knew that soon even his heavenly Father must turn his back on him as he bore the sins of our world. And it was that last thing which was almost suffocating to him. Luke tells us that it was so bad that his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. We also know that as a man, he was tired. And so in verse 43, it tells us that Jesus found his disciples sleeping there in the garden. We're also told that they were asleep because their eyes were heavy. They were tired and they needed sleep. And so did Jesus. He was a man. He felt that tiredness. And we all know, don't we, that weight of sorrow, how it adds to our fatigue. It magnifies it. It makes it feel even greater. Though often there's no relief for us in sleep when such times come as it was for the disciples. We also know, don't we, at times like that how much we want and need the company of others. Now, I understand that that, uh, sometimes when we're in a situation like that, we just want to be left alone. And often when we feel that way, we feel that way because we think we really are equal to it. We're we're really at a place where we we can deal with this ourselves. And and then even even when we know we're overmatched, sometimes for just a little while, we we just want to be left alone. But soon our need, our real need, our real desire, our real want drives us out of that solitude to be near those that we love. And that's what Jesus wanted on that night almost 2,000 years ago now. He wanted his friends to keep watch with him, to be with him. And at the very least, to show sympathy in what he was going through. And we know they failed. Verse 40 tells us, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And 43 later on occurs, it says, when he came back, he found them sleeping again. And then the third time, verse 45 tells us, then he returned to his disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? You know, they had slept away whatever opportunity they had to console our Lord that night. And unless we should be too hard on them, maybe we need to be reminded that every one of us here has done the same kind of thing. We certainly aren't innocent. 
Let me tell you something, friends. If I understand at all what happened that night in Gethsemane, if I understand at all what happened on that cross, then the times we've denied him or deserted him or even betrayed him added to his sorrow that night. Yet, as much as he wanted his friends by his side, he wanted something even more. He wanted to be in the presence of God, and he needed to pray. And that's why he led them that night to that mountain, that he might have the time and a place to spend in God's presence in prayer. And so in verse 39, when we're told that he fell with his face to the ground, he didn't just lie there. He prayed. In his sorrow, and his fatigue, he prayed. And the scriptures describe that scene to us in really a great deal of detail. And what we see as Jesus prays is a kind of process that, that occurs. And, and we can see this change that happens in the very heart of Jesus as he prays. And what we want to try to do is grasp at least to a small extent a little bit, something of what happened there that night. And so what we see when we see Jesus first going to the Father in prayer that night is that he tells God exactly how he feels. And so verse 39 again says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Now that's not all he said there, and I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But we need to understand here that what he was doing was telling God exactly how he felt. Excuse me. He's being completely honest with our Heavenly Father. He's being what we would call transparent. He's expressing his heart's desire that he doesn't want to go through what's coming his way. I have to tell you something, guys. Honesty goes an awfully long way with God. There's something just about speaking the truth to God, who, let's face it, knows the truth anyway, that is pleasing to him, and it opens doors for him to work in our lives when we do that. I love that illustration of Mark. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes back down with the disciples. and There's a crowd around the other disciples, and there is an argument between them and the Pharisees. What's going on, Jesus asked. And they said, well, the man spoke up, and he said, well, I, I brought my son to your disciples for them to heal him, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, bring him to me. And the man brought him, he asked him, how long has he been like that? And he told him. And then he made this statement to Jesus. He said, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then that man cried out and he said, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that honesty moved Jesus, and he healed that man. Now, Jesus didn't have any unbelief in his heart, but that's what he did that night. He was completely open and honest with God. And he's sure he did it in the right way. Truth is, for us, often when we are in such times, we accuse God of not caring or even worse. But in one sense, 
This is, I have to tell you, even then, even in our failure, we're identifying with Jesus, at least in part. We're bearing our soul to God even when we fail and we accuse him. We're bearing our soul to God, and that's precious to him, even in our failure. Now, the reason Jesus did it the right way is because of what he said in that prayer in verse 39. I'm going to read the whole thing again. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not yet not as I will, but as you will. From long years of habit, Jesus had learned that he could ask his father for anything, not anything sinful, of course, but he could ask him for anything as long as he included that condition. Not my will, but your will be done. You see, there is in that statement an acknowledgement that God knows what's best and that he loves us no matter what might come our way and we can trust him completely. It is the very reversal of the original sin of our first parents when they thought they knew better than God and they distrusted God's motive and his intentions. It's saying to God that, Although I want this thing that I'm asking you for so very desperately that my very heart aches, I believe in you. And I trust you to do what is best no matter what that means. You know, God in his grace brings all of his children to that place. I mean, we don't start there. (laughs) Many of us failed. I know I have. So miserably in our times of testing. But God is faithful, and eventually, if we belong to him, he brings us to that place where we say in our heart, not my will, oh God, but yours be done. And then after bearing his heart to his father, Jesus took a moment to check on his disciples. Verse 40 tells us, Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now I have to tell you, there's an awful lot going on here, some of which we may come back to yet mention. But, but one thing we can say is that Jesus had reached a point In his prayer, when he had expressed to God, the Father, what was on his heart, and at that point, his thoughts turned back to the disciples, and he went to check on them. And yet, the time with his Father wasn't complete. And so Jesus now realizes that his desires that he has aren't what God's will for him is. And so he prays that his Father's will be done. So verse 40 tells us, he went away a second time and he prayed, my Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, Jesus has told the Father what was on his heart and he's asked him to grant the desire, but, but only under the condition that it would be the Father's will. And here his focus shifts. He sees that cup, he knows the horror that's to come, and he's willing to drink it. And he prays for God's will. 
There's a sense in where he's come to terms with what is happening, and now he actively prays for God's will to come. You know, in 2010, my uh, mother passed from this life into the presence of the Lord after a 10-year losing battle with Alzheimer's. And throughout those years, I, I prayed for her healing, and really more near the end of that time than at the beginning of her disease. Yeah, I never stopped praying for that healing right up until the very end, even on the last night of her life. But there was, as time went on, a kind of shift in my heart where I more readily accepted God's will. The not my will but yours be done became more and more a part of my prayer and my thinking, my heart. And there really is this kind of peace that comes uh, that makes the sadness and the sorrow bearable. And, and maybe, maybe even in some ways sweet, as hard as that is to understand, maybe it's because when we get to that place, we know we have committed this thing that we love and care so much about into the hands of God where it is safe. It's a different place than when we first began, and like Jesus We can bear our hearts and souls to the Father, and like him, we can find our way to the place where we are praying for his will. And again, Jesus reaches his point of resolution with the Father, and, and his thoughts once again turn to his disciples. And again, he finds them sleeping when he checks with them, as verse 43 tells us. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. You know, we really don't know what Jesus said to him at that time, but we know he said something because Mark tells us that the disciples didn't know what to say to him. And while the disciples slept, Jesus prayed, and as he prayed, his heart was changed. But the process wasn't yet complete, as verse 44 demonstrates. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. See, Jesus had prayed for his Father's will to be done, and now I believe he was praying for the strength to do his Father's will. The words were the same, and in praying for God's will to be done, he's praying for the strength to follow through. We know that in part because of what he said to the disciples back in verse 41. What did he say there? He said, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And and Jesus faced his temptation that night. And although he wasn't a sinner, his flesh was also weak. And so he needed strength to face the temptation and to overcome the weakness of the flesh. And he found that strength in prayer. There's really no doubt that he was practicing what he preached right there. The evidence of it is seen in the last paragraph of that section. Verses 45 and 46. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And he went out and he met God's will Head on. For us too, our time in prayer strengthens us.
to face whatever we might face. Sometimes we turn to God recognizing our need, and sometimes our need simply drives us there. But we go to him, and we find strength when we need it. And there really is no good way to illustrate that. It may be except to say something like there's a kind of steel that enters into our souls when we reach that place where we can do all we can do and we stand and when we have done all that we can do, we keep right on standing. We don't start there. None of us. But by God's grace we get there. The process happens in us when we bear our heart and soul to God and somehow we find ourselves praying for his will no matter what that means and then we turn to him for the strength to do that will. And that's what we see happening here in Jesus' hour of temptation and trial and that's what each of us, if we belong to God, will find ourselves going through at different points in our life. Every one of us will find ourselves there. We don't enter those times of our own choice. And it's God who gets us to the other side. And we don't always understand. Maybe even most of the time, we don't understand why we go through the things that we have to go through. We know, in the case of Jesus, we know that his suffering brought life to the world. And I have to tell you, I don't really don't think it's too much to believe in ways that we can't describe or know or understand that our suffering somehow will bring good to other people also. So we see how Jesus faced the trials in his life. We see that he sought the Father's will above everything else. And we see that there's this process that happens. Many of us have been through that in different ways. Many of us have failed as we entered the process. There's just a couple more observations that I, I want to make before I bring this to a close. God does have a will for you and for me. Most of that is good stuff. Not all of it is. You will find him to be faithful. He will lead you through that process. If you bear your heart to him, he'll change that heart. You'll pray for his will. And then you'll find, as you pray for his will, the strength to go through it. And you know, in this passage, Jesus asked the disciples a question. Could you not watch with me for one hour. You know, an hour is really not too much to ask. When I talk to people about prayer in a different setting, you know, I tell them, say, listen, you, you sometimes hear a preacher read about a pastor who said, I'm so busy, I have to spend three hours every day in prayer, I can't get anything done. That's not where you start. When you're talking about your normal, general praying, you start with a small amount of time dedicated to God. You allow him to fill that time, and you soon find that 10 minutes or 5 minutes or wherever you started isn't enough, and that time begins to expand and it grows. But when we're talking about something like this, an hour is not too much to ask. It's not too much to ask if you're facing temptation. 
It's not. It's not too much to ask to spend on behalf of a friend who's in need. And you know what is so amazing? Is that hour that you spent in prayer brings us tremendous power as God works in your heart and life and changes you. And you become more like Christ one hour at a time like that. There's great power in that prayer. I think there's two other things I want to mention here. And, And the first is I think that although the disciples failed him, I think Jesus found some comfort in them being near I know the truth is, in my life, there have been times that I've gone through trials and, and, and the people who were closest to me didn't understand what I was going through. Sometimes were even critical of me. And yet there was something about just knowing they were near. Something about knowing that they belonged to God. Something about knowing that we're, we're together and we fit this thing together, no matter how hard it might be. Something about their nearness made a difference. And the other thing I want to point out is the concern that Jesus had for the disciples. I mean, he kept checking on them. Why? Because he understood that they were facing an hour of trial and temptation in their own lives. And he wanted to encourage them. think about that. We go through those hard times and, and we feel like we're alone. But we're not. And over and over and over again he comes to us and he encourages us and when we fail he's right there for us. That's the God that we serve. Not one of us in here deserve him. His love, his goodness, his grace. It's all freely given. Because that's who he is. One hour of prayer made a difference in all eternity. Your prayers can matter too. Would you pray with me please? Father, thank you. For your goodness to us and for your word. Help us, Lord to embrace all that you have for us. The good things and the hard times. We 
claim it for our spouse, for better or for worse. So we claim it for you with your help and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.